You're listening to Season 3 of Future Ecologies. Hi folks, this is Adam, and this is the first episode of our third season, which we are really excited to share with you. We're going to be transporting you from the seagrass meadows of Okinawa to the borderlands of the Sonoran Desert, weaving together stories about mutualism, migration, invasion, extinction, and sanctuary. There'll be familiar voices and new producers to introduce and a whole lot of seaweed. It's easily our most ambitious work to date, and I hope you enjoy listening to it as much as we've enjoyed making it. If you follow us closely, then you haven't heard too much from me lately. And that's because, while Mendel has been curating all of these great guest episodes during our hiatus, I've been busy trying to figure out how to approach a handful of ideas that have had a huge influence on how I think about this thing that we call nature. I've had all sorts of fanciful ideas for how to do this, but in the end, I decided to just sit down and talk them through with Mendel in the studio. And the result is what you're about to hear. I might cut in occasionally to add some context, but otherwise it's a pretty unfiltered conversation. So here we go. This is Nature by Design, part one, taking the Neo-Eocenic route. Enjoy. Hey everyone, this is Adam. And this is Mendel. And I've brought Mendel into the studio a little bit blind, as in they have very little idea about what we're going to discuss. We're coming in cold. So um, it's been about three years now since I asked you if you wanted to start a podcast with me. Uh, yeah, life has changed so much since then. It's true. Yeah. I don't, I guess like it's down the memory hole now, but <laughs> I remember you asking me why I wanted to call the podcast Future Ecologies. Yeah, you, you, you came in ready with that name and I was like, okay, we'll, we'll roll with it. It's works for me. Did you get it at the time? I, I liked it. I thought it sounded academic, but I liked it. And I know that we haven't, we haven't done a lot of future, right? Like we've, we've been very much a, a historical show almost and reflections on how we got to where we are and, and the present that we're in and a little bit about how we could take inspiration from the past to, to move forward. But we haven't really talked about the future very much, at least very explicitly. That actually sets us up pretty well for today. <laughs> I feel like I'm finally ready to answer that question to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. So I know we've we've criticized the concept of the Anthropocene a little bit here on the podcast because it kind of implicates the entire human species in mm-hmm. transforming the planet as opposed to like specific human systems. But I do think it's fair to say that ecosystems in every corner of the planet are being impacted by human activities and like really profoundly in, in lots of places. Yeah. So I guess for me, when I'm looking ahead into the future, I think of us living not in like an ecology, but in multiple ecologies hmm. at the same time. And I like for me, I think I can break them down conceptually into three different groups. Okay, we got buckets. Yeah, buckets. Let's go. Okay, so yeah. And just with a disclaimer that like all ecosystems will be some kind of hybrid of these three different groups. Um, so I'm, I'm just hoping you'll humor me for the sake of argument. Okay. This is the world according to Adam. I'll go easy. Okay, so there will be and are ecologies that we as people manage to preserve and protect to some extent. Right. This is like conservation lands, right? Like yeah. parks and designated ecological reserves, right? Quote unquote. Yeah, it could be through successful conservation areas as we traditionally understand them in the West, or that could also be through ongoing traditional lifeways and stewardship. Hmm. It's, you know, it's often quoted that 80% of global biodiversity that is currently protected is protected by indigenous people. Right. So it could be like, yeah, we set it aside and we protect it, but it could also be like, this is the way of life that we've practiced for generations and we managed to maintain that and 
as a result, like these ecosystems maintain that character. So I'm just going to go out on a limb and I'm going to call these kinds of ecosystems cherished ecologies. I love that. Is that all right? Yeah. Okay, cool. So there are the cherished ecologies. And then I think that there are and there will be ecologies that persist in spite of us. Mm. And I'm going to call these tenacious ecologies. Recalcitrant ecologies. Recalcitrant ecologies. All right. (laughs) If you want. (laughs) Sure. Tenacious, recalcitrant. Can you give me some examples? Yeah, sure. So these would be like mostly rugged or remote areas that resist human occupation and industry by dint of just their like hostility to us um so like high mountain peaks right like and the seafloor and parts of the antarctic and like famously places that we love to conquer yeah right yeah swampy areas you know um that are just like so buggy and that we just like can't really make it in there um just just going there and coming back is like triumphant yeah exactly and there's still places like this Mm -hmm. um you know all of those places are being transformed by climate change and you know potentially also nitrogen deposition and all sorts of other factors so it's not like they're unchanged i think everything is always changing fair but if we don't totally destroy the planet i think there are going to be some ecosystems that continue to persist like with some integrity into the future without our protection even despite us right okay so recalcitrant what tenacious tenacious ecology whatever you like so we have cherished ecologies, which are those that we preserve, and tenacious ecologies, which are those that persist. Okay. And so that leaves ecologies that we, as humans, actively create, either intentionally or unintentionally. Right, yeah, by dint of just allowing to catch all of our effects or by steering in some way, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and I came up with a bunch of names for these, <laughs> okay. including... Mendacious ecologies or yeah, too close, fallacious know. ecologies. Ah. <laughs> um, one of today's guests' children calls them freakosystems. Oh, I love that. And the different guests that we have today, they'll refer to them as novel ecosystems or designer ecosystems or even hyper ecologies. Okay. And these are all, some of these are like overlapping terms and some of them refer to different things, which we'll get into. I'm pretty sold on freakosystems. Freakosystems is pretty great. Yeah. But uh, I came up with my own term because. <laughs> Because this is your show. show. (laughs) So uh, as an umbrella term, I want to call them audacious ecologies. Oh. Because I think fundamentally these are ecologies that come to be as a result of our sort of human propensity to take risks Mm. in order to achieve some kind of reward. Right. Yeah. So just to recap, according to you. Just, Just me. Our future ecologies will include some that are cherished some elements that are tenacious and some elements that are audacious. Exactly. Okay. And it's it's that third category, these ecologies that we create on, on purpose or otherwise, that I want to discuss today. And to do that, I'm going to introduce you to two people who have changed the way that I think about the freakosystems all around us and also like what it is that I'm doing with my life in general. <laughs> yeah, okay, let's get to the bottom of you. Let's figure, let's, let's crack this nut. Be careful of what you ask for. Yeah. <laughs> Broadcasting from the unceded, shared, and asserted territories of the Wasatch, Penelicate, Wilitsum, Lalem Saratineo, and other Halkomunum speaking peoples. This. It's future intelligence. Feels good to be back, eh? Yeah. Did we ever really leave i'm just gonna leave a pause there okay so uh Uh i'm just gonna go ahead and introduce you to these two mentors of mine mendel meet eric i'm eric higgs hey eric i'm a professor in the school of environmental studies at the university of victoria 
And I spent a lot of time on Galliano Island. Which is where I live and where we're recording right now. Yes. Uh, what is Eric's deal? What does he do? He studies uh, restoration ecology, which we'll get into in a minute. Right. And um, this is Oliver. Hi, my name's Oliver Kalhammer, and I'm an artist and a permaculture designer, and I currently am a part-time lecturer at uh, Parsons, the new school for design in New York City. Okay, so we have one restoration ecologist and one artist slash permaculturalist. What's the, what's the thread here? What do they have in common? Well, they actually, they have quite a lot in common, although there, there are definitely areas of like creative tension, but it's, it's these areas of creative tension that drive my own practice personally. So I'm hoping that neither of them will mind if we juxtapose their ideas in some of their projects. I hope you checked with them. Just for the record, I did indeed check with them. Anyhow, back to Mendel. Um, so I, I think we should back up a bit because not everyone is a restoration ecologist. Why don't we unpack some of those terms? Restoration and permaculture. I mean, how long do you have? Uh, <laughs> let's keep this one under an hour. Okay. Well, I'll just, I'll, I'll let Eric define ecological restoration because he was actually part of defining it officially back in the day. What, really? Well, let me start with the definition that I think has become uh, the gold standard definition, which is the process of assisting the recovery of an ecosystem that's been degraded, damaged, or destroyed. So that is the official SCR definition. It was one that we worked up in the late 1990s. That's wild. With who? To whom? So SER, that's the Society for Ecological Restoration. So there was a period of turbulence in the early development of the Society for Ecological Restoration where there were a whole bunch of different definitions floating around and we finally put some boundaries on it and came up with that definition, which has been shockingly durable, I think. You know, it's held up over the last couple of decades. Okay, so that's restoration, pretty straightforward. Mm -hmm. And we're about to seriously challenge the boundaries of that definition. Yeah. And I think there's some elegance to the definition. I mean, it can be criticized in lots of ways, too. But one of the attributes I really like about the definition is that it embeds humility within it. It says, you know, we're not fixing ecosystems. We're assisting the recovery of an ecosystem. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Lest we forget how much damage we are capable of doing by trying to fix something. It's happened before. Yeah. So we'll come back to Eric and this question of what restoration is in a bit, if you're cool with that definition. I'm good with that. All right. As for permaculture, I mean, um, <laughs> good luck finding two identical definitions of permaculture. Yes. There's a guy named Bill Mollison, who was the kind of charismatic Australian who is usually considered the founder of the discipline defined as permaculture. He wrote the book. And he defined permaculture as, quote, the conscious design and maintenance of agriculturally productive systems which have the diversity, stability, and resilience of natural ecosystems, end quote. Mm. It's, it's food focused, right? Like it's, it's serving human needs with food for the most part. Yeah, it's utilitarian. And I, I would say the definition has kind of expanded since then. Mm. I, I would personally define it as an ethics-based set of principles for designing resilient ecosystems for human benefit. Right. So would it would it also be fair to say that it's kind of a loose set of principles and practices that in many ways draws on generations of indigenous wisdom, but has largely been popularized and promulgated by settlers? Yeah, I would say that that's pretty fair. I mean, that, that kind of mirrors what happens in ecological restoration, doesn't it? Yeah, I, I think those disciplines shared that in common to some extent. And... And that's, that gets it, like, there's this way that permaculture and ecological restoration are quite similar, which is that they're both based on a set of broadly accepted principles mm. for how we should approach intervening in ecological systems. And, you know, which discipline you choose to work within is, is mostly based on the end goals of that intervention, whether they're a little bit more human utilitarian or a little bit more ecosystem-centric. Right, right. Like, are we trying to produce food or... Are we trying to restore habitat for some endangered species or plural endangered species? Yeah. And like, what if we want to do both at the same time? So this is that creative tension 
you're talking about. Yeah. And, and since permaculture is a bit of a loaded term and discipline, this is the last time I'm going to mention it. Wow. Um, really? In this episode. Holy moly. Because if Eric identifies as a restorationist, Oliver, I think, identifies primarily as an artist. Yes, um, I, I have, and it's a strategy uh, for survival. Uh, there's something odd about art, and um, as soon as you work within the sphere of art, uh, there's a whole set of conditions that start to apply, uh, and you can kind of do things that other folks find a harder time to have the agency to do. So I can say I'm doing this art project, and I can find some funding for that or some support, and I can sort of embark on these kind of crazy projects that uh, may not be immediately utilitarian uh, or have like a, a defined outcome, uh, but I'm able to do these kind of long-term experiments uh, in a way that I don't think I'd be able to do in other territories. And this approach has allowed Oliver to endow the ecosystems that he helps to create with a kind of security that is rarely afforded to ecological systems, especially in a city like Vancouver or New York or, or Toronto, where he has worked in the past. I mean, in those places, like so many gardens and green spaces get developed eventually just because the price of land is so high. But if you call something art, it affords it a certain cachet and a certain kind of protection. Yeah. Strategic. Very strategic. Art has a currency, it has a, a kind of commodity value. In our society, it is a way of identifying certain human objects or sets of relationships that sets it apart from other things. And uh, there's a sort of aura to art, you know, to kind of quote Walter Benjamin. Benjamin. When you want to do certain things, uh, you have to kind of think about where is it situated in terms of, you know, is it, is it a commodity? Is it something to be bought and sold? Well, no. Is it a functional intervention? Well, not necessarily. So what is it? Well, it's a, some sort of a, a cultural investigation into the adjacent possible. So that gets you very close to the realm of art. So it seems to be the, the sort of, you know, last concept standing. Oh, man, there's so much art speaking here and i'm here for it <laughs> um, uh, a cultural investigation into the adjacent possible yeah all right what does that look like can bring that to me in terms of an ecosystem okay um i met oliver in my early 20s when i was like a, a budding gorilla gardener in east vancouver and east vancouver is a pretty industrial kind of place so any green space is kind of noticeable and I started to realize, you know, walking around these areas and, and trying to understand the place that I was in, that this guy named Oliver had been involved in some way in like all of the green spaces. Like you look around and there's Cottonwood Gardens, which is in your neck of the woods. I love Cottonwood. It's so beautiful. Yeah. And then there's means of production, which you also probably are familiar with. I know it. Yeah. And because we're talking about art, there's this conceptual layer too. And a lot of Oliver's projects are meant to become what he calls open source landscapes. Well, I've always had ideas and ambitions to improve the relationships between people and nature. And uh, I see constant breakdowns in that relationship. So so my idea of the open source landscape is, you know, to, to, to go into a situation as, a, as an artist and a designer and look at something that, that, you know, where the relationships between people and the landscape and people and each other could be improved, in my opinion. So this is very subjective on my part. So I think, well, things could be improved. So then I set about creating some sort of a scaffold where the relationships can be improved. And I usually use plants, so I call it like a botanical intervention. So in, in, the, in the work that I did in East Vancouver called Means of Production, I used willow to create a kind of uh, material uh, plantation where people could harvest willow and make things. And then 
But little by little, you know, people did that. But then little by little, people added to that landscape, and they're continuing to add to the landscape by bringing in plants and other features uh, that have other um, uh, intentions, such as you know, somebody who's making musical instruments, somebody's making you know dye for for dyeing fabric, somebody's growing paper uh, making supplies. So all of these things are are what you know evolved things evolved into but they weren't intended originally so so the landscape constantly adapts to the people who use it and who are the stewards of it so these are places you're already familiar with and that are kind of like woven into your understanding of place right mm-hmm. yeah it's hard to imagine the character of east van without those spaces yeah, yeah. i feel the same way and th- there's so much to say about those projects but because we're not talking about permaculture so much, I want to move on to a couple other projects that he's created that I think are really in- informative. Okay. Just before we move on, though, this music that we're listening to right now is being played on instruments made from plants harvested at the means of production garden that Oliver was just describing in East Vancouver. The group is called the Legion of Flying Monkeys Orchestra, and the horns that they're playing have to be seen to be believed. They're artful and strange, and fashioned from trees like elderberry and paulonia, which are harvested at the means of production. This is an outcome that Oliver never anticipated when he made his first botanical interventions there. And that's the beauty of an open source landscape. Anyway, for the rest of this episode, I'm gonna introduce Mendel, and by extension you, to two of Oliver's botanical interventions that challenge the limits of this idea of ecological restoration. The first one is called Healing the Cut, Bridging the Gap. And in this case, one of his botanical interventions has been so successful that it has become almost invisible to people who aren't aware that it's there. Am am I not aware? Is it in my neighborhood? It's nearby. We'll find out if you're aware. <laughs> so to tell the story, I'm going to cut to a piece of tape that I recorded of Oliver during a class that he was teaching. Nice. So it's going to sound a little different. Different in this context means that you're going to occasionally hear chickens because this classroom was attached to a chicken coop, naturally. So as an artist, you know, I'm always looking for these kind of projects and um, uh, this was in the early 90s, 93, I think. Um, there was a, a big construction project that happened uh, right next to the Safeway on Victoria Drive in, in East Bend. And allegedly, it was to build better bridges. So the old bridges were not earthquake stable, and they wanted to build better bridges, but they also had an idea that they wanted to widen the ravine to build like freeways and, and so on. So I had the sense that this wasn't good. So um, I said, okay, I'm an artist, Uh, what can I do? Uh, And fortunately, at the same time, the city of Vancouver was so, like they were getting a lot of flack because this forest that was here before got turned into this, right? And so people were going, oh my God, this is East Van, we hardly have any green space. It has the lowest green space per capita of any neighborhood in the city. We've lost our forest, you guys. So then the city people said, well, we'll bring artists in and we'll make the bridge nice. We'll have like colored banners and we'll have art stuff, you know, it'll make it nice. And so they put out a call for submissions as they always do for artists to kind of gentrify, right? And it's like, I don't wanna do that. But I wanted the money, you know, because I needed to live, right? So it's like, Okay, so I put in a proposal with, with my then collaborator to say, all right, what we're gonna do is we're not gonna make the bridge pretty, it's ugly, irredeemably so. But what we are gonna do is bring the forest back, because that's what people miss. And I went through a whole lot of red tape, juries, blah, blah, blah. Eventually, to make a long story short, I got this contract to, to reforest the Grandview Cut, it's called. So I did, I'll show you how I do it. Well, oh my God, the ravine. Um, okay, so let's break it down for people who aren't East Van dwellers like myself. Yeah. Uh, what is the Grandview Cut. The Grandview Cut created by the Great Northern Railway in 1913 to bring trains in on a level track into the new freight yards on the former False Creek Basin cut the neighborhood in half. So the Grandview Cut is basically a ravine that runs through East Vancouver, but it's not a natural ravine. 
It was actually excavated in the early 1900s in order to provide fill to allow for the construction of rail lines in the False Creek mudflats. That land was created, right, out of basically what must have been like estuary. <laughs> yeah, totally. All the earth that they took out of there filled in the flats, filled in my neighborhood in Strathcona, and filled in like underneath Main Street, which used to be a bridge over the water of False Creek. Yeah, and once they had excavated it, they went ahead and they built a railway right through it. And now there's a SkyTrain. So because it's man-made and has a lot of infrastructure and construction that's gone on within it historically, it's really prone to erosion. So in the meantime, you know, the rain does not stop in Vancouver just because you're like in a meeting, right? So, so it's like, you guys, we have to do something. Because look what's happening. They have this building up here, this condominium, and suddenly like the whole cliff is falling down because of the rain, right? It's like landslide city, like you gotta do something. So finally said, okay, okay, come on, we can try this. But if it doesn't work, we're gonna build a concrete wall. It's like, Oh man, the stakes are high. I mean, like, how many artists do you know that have to solve an engineer's problem? Can I show you some photos? Oh, I want to see photos. Oh man, okay. So this is a photo of before Oliver got started. Oh my god, it's so, like, empty and lifeless. It's just, like, a wall of silt and dirt, and there's not a plant in sight. So now I had like even less time, right? Crazy, crazy, crazy. And I'm like a guy who went to art school. Like, you know, it's good. Gives you a certain arrogance, but it doesn't like qualify you for very much, right? So what do I do? What do I do? So I knew that Willow was a very good way to fix um uh damaged, sort of unstable soil, right? So things like willows and poplars you can literally stick in the ground and they'll grow, right? Very easy, as long as you do it in dormancy. You don't have to do any rooting hormone or anything, you just shove it in the ground, right? As long as it's moist, it'll grow. So I shoved in like hundreds and hundreds of willow sticks on contour. Look at those chickens. <laughs> oh, let's see. Thought I had a shot. There he is. Oh. There's a young Oliver live staking with willow. Just a bundle full of willow. Willow's great. Living fences, living trellis. Gotta love Willow. The hillside was like completely barren and the birds had no place to live, right? And so one of the main vectors of plant growth is birds, right? Because birds eat seeds and fruits and birds constantly. That's what birds do. If you ever parked under a cherry tree, you get on your car, like a lot, right? So bird flies around, out comes a seed, out comes a tree. So if you can attract birds, you get a forest, right? So I realized there's no way you can plant enough willows to do this in time. I needed help, right? And the birds were my in, right? So I built these little birdhouses, right? And uh, the birds were like, where's my tree? Oh, I'm gonna have this like stupid little house, but it's better than nothing. So they moved in. Oh. And, and the little birdhouses? Yeah, they're just like, just classic box birdhouses on sticks sort of peppered along this this highly eroded wall of mud and grass and there's me right like with my sticks and i'm like super afraid of heights so it's like the worst it's like, oh. the only thing was it was really muddy so i could i had this big piece of rebar so i could sort of catch myself in the mud as i started falling and i could kind of scramble back up the hill again so like here's another shot of that slope like just like eroding away right yeah that doesn't look safe and like there's a building right above it it's oh just like God. a disaster waiting to happen it looks like just straight up and down mud yeah so he's doing all of this work but there's still lots of erosion going on while it's happening right and right. these huge gullies have formed which is what happens but that's okay because what happens is trees will continue to root so the more you know, disturbance, the more rooting. So uh, even if a bunch of soil falls down, the willow does not want to die, right? So it's going to continue to push, 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 push out and anchor in, 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 which it's like the opposite of a piece of steel, which just sits there, right? Willow is a, it has an intelligence. It's, it's alive. It's not just a neutral material. It has an agenda. Like it, it doesn't want to die. It wants to be a big willow tree. So it's going to constantly be adjusting itself, which neutral, sort of passive materials don't do. So with biomaterials, you actually harness the natural intelligence of the material to, to adjust dynamic situations, right? Yeah. Everything with its agenda. You just better hope that it lines up with your agenda. 
that's true <laughs> well and in, in this case like the overlap was just like mm-hmm. it was perfect because like so again here's here's the conceptual drawing that mm-hmm. he made to kind of submit to to get the contract in the first place right it's like a pen and ink drawing of a of the slope with the access road running down it and a few plants here and there and then a, a close-up of the little birdhouse yeah and then you know after not too many years like this is what that site looks like that's the ravine i know it's just covered in trees and greenery uh are those all willows now um no so there's been succession on the site Mm -hmm. and so originally he planted willows but eventually they were shaded out by cottonwoods and alders wow and as far as he knows the birds planted them wow but yeah the slope is fully vegetated now and if you were biking by just on the bridge yeah you'd like never know right yeah i mean it just it looks exceedingly natural right like it's not clearly a park space where people are supposed to go and somebody's gardening it and caretaking it yeah you never think twice about it and um, and why would you Mm -hmm. the trees look like they've always been there and i mean the project was a complete success from the point of view of like a restorationist Mm -hmm. he stabilized the slope and reduced the erosion and he established a native tree cover and he did it with like minimal expense you know like people look at this going oh forest but they don't know that this is a completely it's an art art thing right but if you look closely there is one element that could clue you in to the this this is an art project (laughs) okay tell me okay so i had all this leftover money because uh i didn't have any material costs except for sticks and like a bus pass so um i uh i got them to modify the bridge and put this big, which costs like a lot of money, uh, to put this this telescope up and these plaques where you can then watch the birds and watch the trees growing. And people love now stopping in the middle of the bridge because it's kind of a long bridge. And they stop, look at the telescope, look at the trains, look at the bridge, uh, look at the uh, the birds, and. Uh, it's become a, a, a place of kind of reflection on the regenerative processes of nature, not just a place to hurry across uh, from one side of uh, the ravine to the other. So it's, it's changed the kind of experience of moving across that bridge. Oh, I've, I've noticed a little, it's, like, it's a binocular technically, right? Like it's one of those classic tourist trap pole mounted binoculars. Yeah. I've never thought about like, why would anybody peer down into this space like why is this a tourist attraction i've never stopped to question that yeah that's so funny and it's because it's 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 technically a work of art like oliver wanted people to see it as it grew Mm. and to be able to watch the birds and to be able to enjoy the plants growing and now he has intellectual property rights over that slope so if the city ever wanted to like modify it again, they'd have a legal fight on their hands. You know, I don't, I've got my problems with IP law, but this seems like a force for good. Yeah. Yeah. So next time you stop on that bridge, take a look through the binos and just think about how things have changed. Yeah. I will, I'll make a point of it. So that's that's project number one. Yeah. And that that seems like right on target for textbook ecological restoration. Yeah. Except Oliver, in his own jargon, would call it a botanical intervention. Okay. So what's project number two? Okay. So um, project number two, Oliver spent many years teaching permaculture at a place called Linnea Farm on Cortez Island, which is also here in the Salish Sea, but north of Galliano. And Cortez actually still supports a healthy wolf population. So compared to the Grandview cut, I would say most people would would think that it was in pretty good shape. Right. Ecologically. Sure. But if you peer beneath the surface on any of these islands, right, and, and virtually anywhere on the coast of BC, you can see that there are all of these lingering effects of industrial forestry, like everywhere. No doubt. You don't have to go far to find like abandoned equipment as deep as you care to go in practically any forest, right? Yeah. Like forestry. Old road cuts, yeah. soil compaction. The the reach is endless. And then, of course, there's there's climate change. And on the West Coast, that means for weeks on end in the summertime, we can just have smoke for air. 
So this was a couple years ago. This was on Cortez Island, you know, normally known as a sort of paradise kind of hippie place with clean air and charismatic whales and everything. And it was like Armageddon. It was like, you know, the air you couldn't breathe was worse, worse in New York. This was the sun at noon on Cortez, right? Crazy. And we didn't have fires on Cortez. Our fires were miles and miles away in the mainland. So air quality was terrible, but it's happening more and more now. We're getting these incredible hot summers forest fires, and trees are dying. So this is happening in the forest. These are western red cedars. They're actually having trouble. Now, there are places where they're doing fine, of course, but any cedar that's on a kind of edgy spot, like that's maybe a little rocky or not getting good water, they tend to die. So, so the shifting, there's been a shifting of species happening. And this is something we need to notice, if you're interested in forestry at all, maybe we shouldn't be planting cedars as much, maybe we should be planting different kinds of trees. So on Cortez, because of this, Oliver started this project called Neo-Eocene, that's a mouthful, which uh, he has worked on with this botanist named Rupert Sheldrake. Oh my god, Rupert Sheldrake? Oh. <laughs> ah! Like, the Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah. Like, botanist, scientist, philosopher, new age mystic, Rupert Sheldrake. Yeah. I'm involved in this long-term experiment with a botanist called Rupert Sheldrake, uh, planting trees from 50 million years ago that used to grow here. Like, you can find, if you are in the lower mainland in sort of places like Maple Ridge or in like places in the interior like uh, Kamloops, you can find fossil redwoods and ginkgos and uh, cypresses and stuff. You can find them. Uh, they grew here, but they grew when it was as warm 50 million years ago, four degrees C warmer than it's, as, as warm as it's gonna get within the next 100 years. So our experiment was to bring these trees back to, to the British Columbia forest to see if they would grow without any help. All the trees had their knees up. Isn't that right? When it was like warm and swampy, they all had like their knees out of the... I've never heard that before. They have knees. <laughs> okay, whatever. <laughs> I love that. <laughs> all the trees had their knees up. That's bald cypresses, right? They have like, they have like roots that's, I'm trying to remember what they're called now. I'm a bad botanist. I thought they were knees. So, so wait, what is that? What do you mean by that? Well, like cypresses, they they have their little knobbly knees and they poke them out of the dirt. I don't know why, I think it's gas exchange. Okay, I have to interject here for a minute. When Mendel's talking about knees, they're referring to the bizarre woody projections that surround the trunks of bald cypress trees, almost like swampy stalagmites. We did a little follow-up sleuthing after this conversation and discovered that while early botanists did indeed believe that these structures facilitated oxygen exchange for the cypress tree and called them pneumatophores, in fact, there is no evidence that they played this role. In the end, these pneumatophores are still just knobbly knees, as Mendel said, and we don't know why bald cypresses have them and why other similar trees don't. Anyway, the point is, Oliver and Rupert were imagining a forest of trees that grew in the hot, humid swamps of prehistoric North America, the last time levels of carbon dioxide were as high in the atmosphere as they're projected to be if we don't stop burning fossil fuels, and fast. It's the hot, swampy times. Yeah. Classic, prehistoric. Prehistoric. So yeah, that's, and that's the idea. So Rupert had purchased some land that had been clear-cut. And so, you know, like restoration, Oliver and Rupert decided that they were gonna reforest that clear cut. But what we did is we got hold of one of these clear cuts uh, and started planting it with not Douglas firs and cedars, but with redwoods and sequoias and walnuts and ginkgos and things that we thought would do well because they grew well 50 million years ago. And we had a sort of 60 acre plantation. Okay, so yeah, he's he's bringing back these ancient species. Yeah, but but why? Well, if if restoration is quote unquote assisting in the recovery of an ecosystem that has been damaged, then like the keyword there is recovery, right? Like recovery to what? Would it be recovery to like health or or to the way that it was previously? And so like 
oftentimes people are thinking that it's just about taking an ecosystem back to a previous state, right? Restore, like to restore something. Right. Make trees great again. Oh God. Sorry. <laughs> and, 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 and usually like we use something that restorationists call a historical reference ecosystem, hmm. which is basically like an ecosystem that's kind of still like that. And so we use that as a model. We're like, oh, this ecosystem used to be like that one still is. So we're going to try to make this one like that again. And basically what Oliver is saying here is that, I mean, if we're going to keep putting carbon into the atmosphere, like there's no tomorrow, (laughs) then the most appropriate historical reference ecosystem is not like Cortez Island in the year 1800, right? It's Cortez Island in the Eocene, like 50 million years ago, when carbon levels were about this high in the atmosphere. He's going prehistoric. He's going prehistoric. And and what that means is planting Don Redwoods and Coast Redwoods and giant sequoias and ginkgos and bald cypresses, plants that dominated this region at that time. So back in those times, I mean, nobody was around, but they speculate from like the fossil records, this is what it looked like. So you had these trees like the cypress and stuff growing in the water. You had a lot of crazy critters that don't live here anymore, like crocodiles and pythons and tapirs and stuff. Does he have space for big horsetails? <laughs> I want big horsetails. And prototaxides. Unfortunately, <laughs> none of those survived the intervening mass extinction events. Like, give me prototaxides. <laughs> <laughs> if you build it, maybe they will come. I don't know. Like, yeah, you you can't get back all these extinct megafauna, right? So right. it's definitely like they planted the trees that have survived the intervening 50 million years and are still with us today. Now, mind you, the summers were wetter, so so the ginkgo didn't particularly love, love it here. It likes wetter summers. But the redwoods were very happy, and so were the sequoias. So, you know, we learned some things. This is like a you know five-year-old redwood. It's just kicking butt, and it's not protected. We didn't have to cone them because the deer don't like them. And uh, they are doing out-competing the native red cedars in a clear cut with no water. Now, some people didn't like this idea. And it was a very good argument. And I, I, I totally respect their point of view because we had some covenants on the land. And the covenants insisted that the trees that were to be reforested were to be the native trees. But my argument was they're prehistorically native. Okay, they were native years ago. It's still a big issue in restoration ecology. You're going to come up against people who think you're nuts and you shouldn't be able to do this. And it's a worthwhile discussion to have because, you know, you don't want to be the person to be the next scotch broom introducer person, right? So, so there's downsides to exotics, right? But my argument is that formerly native species are fair game, right? <laughs> okay. Prehistorically native. That's, uh, that's a bold take. Yeah. What do you think of his argument? You know, that that's like an artist's way of framing it right like that's so funny to not go back to like how it was pre-industrial right but to go all the way back so far back into the world that we are becoming into this high carbon high heat probably pretty wet around here yeah the bald cypress has got to get their knees up the bald cypress has got to get their knees up and like it sticks your nose right in it, right? Like, get ready. We're going back. We're going all the way back. And yeah. these are the plants that we need. Back to the future. It's back to the future. I kind of like it. I, I I think it's it's incendiary. Yeah. But it's funny. So I asked Eric about this project, yeah. and this is what he said. So as an act of provocation, it's brilliant. As a learning opportunity, it's really powerful. And as a specific experiment, it strikes me as being bold and original should we all be planting bald cypress probably not (laughs) yeah exactly it's it serves as art right like it's not hopefully the model but yeah definitely at like the outer limits of what you would possibly be able to define as ecological restoration yeah but like all of oliver's open source landscapes that ecosystem is going to change and evolve on its own over time and different organisms and people are going to participate in that process. So in that way, it is a lot like many restoration projects, right? Yeah, it's just a it's just a wildly different starting point. As a designer, I see myself as sort of homeopathic presence. I um, introduce some small quantities of design and then watch uh, the sort of 
sort of catalytic effect, kind of watch it unfold. Uh, and then eventually I'm not required anymore, which is like the best feeling in the world when you can just go, oh, they don't need me. I can go do something else. And that's fortunately happened in most of my work. It's yeah. lucky to some extent, but it's also built in, like, like my obsolescence is built in. I mean, yeah, opinions vary about homeopathy, but I, I like the sentiment, right? Like you were framing it like open source implies that like anybody really can access it and change it over time. And that's, that's not just humans, right? Those are birds and those are burrowing animals and those are beetles and spiders and fungi. And, you know, I sometimes call myself an artist and I know how hard it can be to step back from your work and just allow other people to help it evolve. It does, like, it takes a lot of trust. And also, like, a, a real sense of, like, the impermanence of things, which is kind of ironic because Oliver identifies himself as a permaculturalist. That's so funny. Maybe impermaculture is a is a better target. Yeah, it's got a nice ring to it. Hey. I would say, like, I think he is kind of an impermaculturalist. Yeah, that's the thing. Um, the transience of things is very important to appreciate, and, and um, I'm luckily to be married to a Zen Buddhist uh, who's taught me a lot about um, ephemerality. And there's a Japanese notion of mono no aware, which is a sort of poignant awareness of the transient of things, which is transience of things, which is kind of epitomized by the cherry blossom. You know, the cherry blossom blooms and it's beautiful and it's even more beautiful when it's just finished and falling off the tree, right? Because that's the moment of overness. But that moment is so beautiful. And so the ephemerality of our efforts uh, is something that we need to cultivate as an aesthetic. I think we need to cultivate more ephemerality and, uh, and emergent sort of generative things that they can change, they can pop up, they can exist for a while, they can live their lives. Um, sometimes they might last 100 years, sometimes they might last 100 days. And, and that's okay. It's, it's incredible. There's just this like East Van osmosis happening between me and him. Or that like his intellectual DNA that we're discussing right now is embedded in the landscapes that you have been living in and soaking in. In my entire life, right? And like the, the aspirations of what a healthy urban ecological system looks like is entirely informed by his life's work. And I had no idea, right? Like I just grew up in it. Yeah. That's amazing to me. Yeah. I mean, homeopathy, opinions may vary, but uh, <laughs> pretty effective in this case. Yeah. You know, now that Oliver has taken us on a tour of some of his artworks, these open source landscapes and botanical interventions. These audacious ecologies. Yeah. I... It's really cool to see how much they have to offer, I guess, folks like us who, when you get down to it, are really just trying to improve those relationships between people and that more than human world. Yeah, it's fascinating to see how an artist's approach can really allow you to make some beautiful things and stretch the definition of ecological restoration that Eric gave us. Actually, just like stretch the definition of nature, right? And so I guess... At this point, I really want to return to Eric because he's got a pair of cautionary tales for us about what happens when the nature that you think you're designing with or for doesn't really resemble nature at all. That sounds great. I, I gotta stop you there though. Oh. Um, okay. Uh, why? I think this episode has gone on just about long enough. <laughs> I guess you're right. I, I totally lost track of time. I'm, I'm sure you have more to say. I do have more to say. I think we gotta hold on to that. Till next time. Yeah, I guess you're right. <laughs> um, okay, so 
that would be next time on Future Ecologies, part two of Nature by Design, a tale of two wildernesses. Thanks for listening. This has been an independent production of Future Ecologies. This episode was produced by myself, Adam Huggins. And me, Mendel Skolsky. In this episode, you heard Oliver Kellhammer and Dr. Eric Higgs. Oliver teaches at the Parsons School of Design at the New School in New York, and you can learn about his many projects at oliverk.org. Eric teaches at the University of Victoria and is the author of several books, including Nature by Design, People, Natural Processes, and Ecological Restoration. You can learn more about his work at erichiggs.ca. We'll be back next month with part two. Please rate and review Future Ecologies wherever podcasts can be found. Special thanks to Hannah Rossler, Todd Howard, Brea Seger, Sadie Couture, and Ilana Finariov. Music in this episode was provided by Scott Gailey, the Legion of Flying Monkeys Horn Orchestra, and Sunfish Moonlight. If you like what we do, please share us with your friends. You can also support us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to special mini-episodes, interview segments, stickers, patches, and a Discord server. You can support us starting at just $1 a month by going to patreon.com futureecologies. And we want to give a special shout out to all the patrons who supported us through our hiatus. You really keep us going. I love our patrons. We honestly have the coolest patrons. Uh, I love you guys. You can get in touch with us on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, and iNaturalist. And maybe Discord. The handle is always Future Ecologies. You can find a full list of musical credits, show notes, links, and now episode transcriptions on our website, futureecologies.net. Okay, that's it for now. See you next time. Bye. That's after the break. We have breaks again? <laughs> we took a break from breaks. <laughs> We're back to breaks. We don't even sell ads. What are we doing? That's the break. <laughs> That's the break. <laughs>